I was completing a six-week retreat. Right around this point in the retreat, maybe two or three days before the retreat, was coming to the formal end. And I felt like I can't go back into the world. I can't go back into the working world. I really need to devote my life fully to the Dharma. But it really wasn't in the cards. <laughs> Had a partner, still with the same partner. Had a job that I really did love. But I felt I had to devote my life fully to the Dharma. And I do appreciate many of you here who are dropped out of the working world so you can devote yourselves more fully in that way. Maybe to a very long retreat practice or traveling to Asia. But for me, my engagement was to still be in the working world. But I had to bring the Dharma fully in. So I made the resolve, I'm going to practice fully in the world. I'm going to bring the eightfold path of practice into my life. And then there was kind of a aha moment. Of course, that's what the teachers have been saying all along. No division between retreat practice and being in the world. But I finally got it. <laughs> and the Eightfold Path became the key, this noble, fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path leading to the very end of suffering. So I set this deepest intention to bring this practice of present awareness into every aspect of my life, including work life. It was a big step. Particularly practicing with the right intention. And so tonight I'll speak about the Eightfold Path and particularly about right view and right intention. So more broad framework of the Eightfold Path and more specifically on right view and right intention. When I started practicing in this way, it really brought more ease, connectedness to my life and have a less of that sharp division between retreat practice and the rest of my life. And deepen my practice overall. So a little review of the Four Noble Truths. First Noble Truth, that there is dukkha. There is this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability that is universal to the human experience. Constant flux, everything in constant flux old age, sickness, death, not being able to have what we want, having what we don't want, everything arising from causes and conditions, no one directing the show, no stage director, dukkha. And there's this cause, this underlying craving, thirst, unquenchable thirst for sense pleasure, constantly occurring, and this craving for becoming, for being, and this craving for non-becoming or non-being. So this is the second noble truth, uh, the cause of suffering. And there is this third noble truth, end of dukkha. Freedom. The cessation of suffering. An unshakable peace that is the promise of the path of practice. And then the fourth noble truth, that there is this path of practice, this eightfold path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. So a good way to frame these four noble truths is to view the first noble truth as the illness. So dukkha, the illness. Second noble truth of craving is the cause of the illness. The third noble truth is a cure. And the fourth noble truth is a, a course of treatment to treat the under, underlying ailment. It's just amazing that the same framework that the Buddha taught 2,600 years ago, his teachings are still as alive today as they were in his time. We're, we're practicing right here 
were the very instructions he provided in that time. So he offered this framework, this, this course of practice to support our own direct realization, to support the direct realization of the truth of the way things are. And with this pra- practice, more and more we recognize that the practice itself does the work. It's not about getting anywhere or achieving anything or attaining anything. It's a practice of open, receptive awareness. A practice of returning again and again, whether here on retreat or whether in our daily lives. So we open to recognize and be present with and support the diminishment of the underlying defilements, those things that cloud the heart and mind, forces of greed, aversion, delusion, the wanting, not wanting, the cloudiness that arises from when delusion is present. And at the deepest root of those defilements is ignorance, the ignorance that doesn't see things as they are, doesn't see things as they really are, and is rooted in the misperception of an identity view. Thus, that analogy I touched on before, such a a useful analogy in my own practice to view the defilements as being like the clouds, this wanting, the forces of the wanting, not wanting, like clouds that cover the heart-mind, that cover the clarity of the way things really are. And as we practice, letting the light of awareness shine on the defilements when they're present, staying with the practice with open receptivity, and we allow that fog of confusion to drop away, opening to perfect clarity, really opening to love. From Sharon Salzberg, a mind filled with love can be likened to the sky with a variety of clouds moving through it, some light and fluffy, others ominous and threatening. No matter what the situation, The sky is not affected by the clouds. It is free. We have moments like that in our practice when we experience that. Just a moment in time where there's no coming or going. Just present, clarity. And that knowing can stay with us as we return to the world. It may not be in the thinking process, but there's a deeper knowing, deeper understandings that have arisen with practice here that will support us in our lives. Uh, Turning to the Eightfold Path, there's a beautiful book that many of you may be familiar with, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Noble Eightfold Path. That's the title, The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way Leading to the End of Suffering. Bhikkhu Bodhi is this amazing, I think, real treasure uh, to our practice. He uh, translated uh, Buddhist discourses, enormous volumes of discourses from Pali to English. A great gift to the practice. He grew up in New York, obtained a PhD in philosophy, and right after graduating, ordained as a monk in Sri Lanka and spent most of his um, adult years in Sri Lanka. He's returned to New York now. About a a year ago, I drove him from SFO, from the airport to Santa Rosa. And usually it would be about an hour and 15 minute trip, but it was a very rainy day, much rainier than today. And uh, it ended up being a three hour drive. Um, He said it was like the monsoon rains of Sri Lanka. Uh, It was a privilege to be able to get that much time with him. It's a very long day of travel for him, but he had had a real sense of deep equanimity. Even though his flight had been delayed three hours from New York, I think he'd gotten up at 2.30 in the morning. I think we finally arrived in Santa Rosa about 9 p.m., so midnight East Coast time, so a very long day. But he was a very engaging presence and... uh, a monk who really practiced with sila, really perfecting the qualities of the heart, these qualities of non-harming. 
And what really stood out was his commitment and interest in talking about social justice. That out of the commitment to non-harming, what arose is action, action in the world to relieve suffering, kind of compassionate action. He created a Buddhist Global Relief Fund that um, provides support for worldwide causes to relieve suffering. He's an activist for the environment. We shared a common interest. We spent some time talking about, about providing for fair wages and benefits for workers in our own country. So his book is a great tool to use. It, uh, it's really, really I've used as a reference in my own pra- practice, kind of a reference manual. You could probably go home on Sunday and spend six hours reading it and finish it in six hours. But it's really a book to go back to again and again. In my own practice, the Eightfold Path has become more and more important. Really providing the framework, the guidance for the whole of my life. I'm leading in San Francisco an advanced practitioner study group. And we meet once a month for three hours and we're going very slowly. We're reading the Guy Armstrong's book on emptiness, taking a full year to read it slowly. This is the way to read the Dharma and to really study it. At the same time, we're, we're reading The Eightfold Path by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And this is a group of practitioners that includes several who've been practicing over 30 years, three who've been practicing over 40 years. Pretty amazing still following the Eightfold Path. And it's the path of practice right up into the point of complete liberation, deepest realization. I'll touch on the eight factors under the Eightfold Path and uh, do the same grouping of three as I did in an earlier talk, as three is easier to remember. So the sila, sila basket is right view and right intention. I'm sorry, wisdom basket is right view and right intention. Wisdom basket, right view and right intention. Sila basket, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then the concentration basket of right energy, right mindfulness, right concentration. So wisdom, sila, concentration could also interpret concentration as a practice basket of energy, mindfulness, and concentration. So it might seem like the wisdom basket of right view and right intention should be at the end of the path, but they really, they serve as a starting point for the path of practice, starting point and basic understanding, and then deepen over the course of our practice. So they as a practice really deepens, as there's deep realizations into the Four Noble Truths, these factors become much stronger. So right view at the start provides the overall perspective that there is dukkha, that there is this unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, often translated as suffering, this factor that brought probably most of us here to this practice this recognition, recognition of this inherent satisfactoriness. And some understanding that the path of practice leads in the direction of a greater peace and ease, in the direction of a freedom that is ultimately not conditioned on anything of the world. So it may not be so much a conscious kind of thinking that this is the direction of practice, but there can be this just a sense of trust of confidence, as Brian talked about a couple days ago, this trusting confidence in the direction of the practice, leading to a deeper happiness, ultimately to a deeper freedom. So right view provides kind of the overall direction for the practice, kind of like the guiding beacon that can support our practice through thick and thin. And it does lead, this path of practice, leads to a happiness that's not dependent on anything, not dependent on health, on finances, on relationships. 
This is the beauty of the practice, realizing this ease and happiness that's not dependent on anything. So right view also starts with the basic understanding that actions have consequences. And without exception, actions have consequences. Perhaps we've felt this even when we've broken a precept on this retreat in some very small way. There's a, a rattledness, kind of a dis-ease that can come when we engage in an action that's unwholesome, not in line with the precepts. And we know that actions have consequences in our daily life. If, if we speak and act with anger, there's a consequence. Nothing wrong with feeling anger. Anger can even be a source of energy. But when we speak harshly toward another person, person get upset, there's a karmic consequence. We feel it as kind of a rattledness. Maybe we get it back, thrown right back at us. Maybe from, our, from a loved one we might have gotten angry with or from a coworker we get angry with. It's a karmic consequence. Actions have consequences. And my own practice is, especially on retreats, many times over the years, just connecting right here in this hall sometimes without understanding every action and every intention matters. Because there's a karmic consequence of every intention and action before every action is an intention. So we become more and more committed to acting in a way that's in harmony with our hearts, in harmony with other beings. And it also reflects that understanding of karma that I mentioned the other day, the, the karma that is the Understanding of karma, karma is a present moment action that results from past intentions, past actions, and present intention. Basically everything arising from causes and conditions. The great definition of karma from Ruth Dennison, who was one of the first women insight meditation teachers in the West. Karma means you don't get away with nothing. Cuts right to the bottom line. She actually added the word uh, darling at the end. Karma means you don't get away with nothing, darling. <laughs> so right view, in effect, turns us toward what is wholesome, what is not rooted in needing, wanting, not wanting, not rooted in the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. And it brings forth ease and the beautiful qualities of the heart, the divine abodes we've been speaking about and asking you to practice with. A good tool I've used in my life to just drop in that connection to right view at times. Just when there's upset happening, when there's kind of a trigger happening, where there's a sense of some reactivity, maybe in interacting with other people, just dropping in the phrase silently, actions have consequences. Just that little reminder. And pausing, connecting with the body, such a good tool to use in practicing in the world, to stay connected to the body, to pause, to feel the feet on the floor or the sits bones on the chair. And we can catch too in our daily lives at those times when Sometimes a good intention arises, maybe generosity, kindness. There can be that impulse to act on that generosity and then sometimes a backing away like, oh no, that's too much. Kind of the thinking mind taking hold, the force of aversion taking hold like that's too much. And we don't engage in that wholesome action, maybe a wholesome generous action. So in my own practice, I really watch for that impulse and intention on generosity and watch for the rebound that sometimes leads in the other direction and then returning to the original intention that's not rooted in confusion and acting from that place. There's such a beautiful benefit to practicing generosity and really a very important part of my practice is to watch for that impulse and have an underlying intention that I'm really committed to to act 
on the impulse when it arises. It really is touching something deep in our own hearts and coming from that place of clarity where the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion aren't present. Quote from Maya Angelou, I have found that among its other benefits, generosity liberates the soul of the giver. Sometimes the generosity can be so spontaneous. I remember returning from my first metta retreat here at Spirit Rock. Returned to the city, and I live in San Francisco, just a half block from Market Street. Very busy street. Lots of homeless people. And I turned the corner the first day after being back from the retreat, and here was a man with no shirt, no jacket, and with cold air. And without hesitation, the words came out of my mouth, here, you look cold, take my jacket. I was so surprised, where'd that come from? (laughs) There was no thinking. (laughs) It was so spontaneous, just the recognition of suffering the wish for it to end, and the action. The defilement's not in the way. In many ways, it felt like at the time, like that's my first act of pure generosity in my whole life. Not that I wasn't generous, and that, that, I don't know that that was really true, but it felt so pure in the action. It could be that I could take pride in that, but there was no one there that could take pride because it just unfolded that way. There was no me in the coming forth of that generosity. So it's really this trusting of the heart, trusting of the awareness when we let the defilements drop away, when we allow the practice to carry us, this natural purity naturally comes forth. It can be very subtle sometimes watching for the presence of the defilements, especially for the force of delusion, kind of a mental fogginess or a lack of sensitivity. So just by its nature, it's hard to be aware when it arises. In my own practice, often I'll catch it more as a reflection from someone else's face in daily life than from my becoming aware of it internally. So maybe in my neighborhood, I go in a restaurant or a shop and I'm buying something or the uh, wait person comes up to take my order and suddenly I see their face contract a little bit. Ah, I'm not present. They're reacting to the fact that there's a mental fogginess and I'm not really connected in the present moment. That being kind of a signal to wake up and see the force of the delusion that's present, that blocks the heart. Right intention now. Right intention is a second path factor. Again, recognizing there's an intention before every action. If we're in the kit in the dining hall, before we lift the fork, there's an intention to lift the fork. Before we stand up from the sit, there's an intention. And having right intention, cultivating right intention, right intention not rooted in greed, aversion, delusion, supports right speech, right action, right livelihood. The third, fourth, and fifth path factors. So right intention, there's three qualities of right intention I'll speak about. There's, there's three, three main attributes of right intention. The intention for renunciation, the intention for loving kindness, and the intention for non-harming, which is supported by compassion. So the intention for renun- renunciation. For most of us, this doesn't mean giving up everything of the world. Although it can be really good in our practice in daily life to just give up some things, to live more simply. Really supports the practice. 25 years ago, I gave up watching TV. A great thing to give that up. So it's not so much a uh, 
practice of um, renouncing things as it is a practice of renouncing the force of desire. And we renounce desire not because it's morally wrong, but because of the recognition that this unquenchable desire for sense pleasure is at the root of suffering. So that becomes a reason for renunciation, not because of moral edicts or rules. Something I think is really beautiful about this practice in that way. So we give up the attachment to the desire itself, not necessarily the things of the world. And it supports the letting go of the cling, the grasping, the pushing away, grasping for what we like, pushing away what we don't like. We can catch this as kind of a leaning into or a backing away, it's kind of a signal of clinging, taking hold. And we can really appreciate those times too when clinging or craving are absent. Those times when, as I said at the beginning of the talk, where there's neither coming or going, just that moment of purity, of pure presence really worth appreciating those moments in our lives, in our practice, both here on retreat and in the world. That's a further onward leading direction of the practice. So it deepens the groove when we take time to appreciate those moments. We still need to be fully present too. We can't renounce of defilements just by saying, I renounce them, they're not going to arise. They're still going to arise. It's a path of practice to be present with the defilements when they arise. Maybe in the form of fear, or anger, sadness, grief, shame. To be present for all of it. A beautiful quote I just saw today from Bishop Desmond Tutu. We are meant to live in joy This does not mean that life will be easy or painless. It means that we can turn our faces to the wind and accept that this is the storm we must pass through. We cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. As we practice with right intention, with the intention of renunciation, cultivating what is wholesome, we make more room so that even in daily life we can more often catch the forces of the defilements when they're present, let the light of awareness shine on them and support their diminishment. A wise renunciation counters the force of greed, of wanting. From Shantideva, why be unhappy about something if it can't be remedied? I need to repeat that, I said the wrong word. Why, why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy if it cannot be remedied? So it's really embodied so beautifully, I think, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that attitude of renunciation. That as a leader of his country, as a spiritual leader, the head of state, he lost his country. And yet he's this force of love and light in the world. Great equanimity, even with the loss of his country. And that he can call the Chinese government leaders, my friends, the enemy. (laughs) It's also embodied so beautifully, was embodied so beautifully by Nelson Mandela, who after decades in prison, the ending of apartheid, became the leader of South Africa. And after all the years of hatred by the government officials, all the hatred in that society, he didn't react with hatred toward that hatred. He led from a place of peace and love, leading a peace and reconciliation process. In effect, renouncing the forces of ill will So I had a rich opportunity to practice with renunciation in my work. Um, I really decided to bring the Eightfold Path into my work. My job for 21 years was as airport director for San Francisco International Airport. 
and uh, it was actually a great job. I could do a lot of a lot of good things. It was a demanding job. Um, seventh busiest airport in the country, 2,000 employees, a lot of demands. I think for years I thought I couldn't really bring the practice into work, but it became a very rich place to do that. So in my acknowledging this, maybe you now recognize why we have meditation and yoga rooms at uh, SFO. <laughs> <laughs> You know, 20, 21 years as airport director, and the single biggest news story was a yoga room. Eight, <laughs> 18,000 news stories worldwide <laughs> on one yoga room. <laughs> I understand the airport director in Bangalore got in a little hot water for not having the first yoga room. But <laughs> When I started to practice with renunciation and at, at work, it meant letting go, letting go of kind of my being the one who had special knowledge or needed to direct the way things would work. It's surprisingly, I didn't intend this, but I stopped needing to be the airport director. Kind of took off that hat. It wasn't who I was and recognized it was painful to be wearing that identity. So I started to be able to be John with the people I worked with and allowed myself to be more transparent and vulnerable and really made such deep and rich human connections with so many employees in that way. That became the richest part of my job as a human connection. It took me about, I guess about 11 years to start realizing uh, how the Eightfold Path could really support me in my work more fully in my life. And there's a deep letting go around the outcomes. So if you're in the working world, you know you need to have plans and goals. Maybe if you're not in the working world, you still have plans and goals. Perhaps, maybe not, but... Plans and goals are normal, but we can let go of the outcome. We can let go of our attachment to the outcome. We don't need to make our happiness dependent on the outcome. Really big shifts. And actually with that, there's an opening to possibility and mystery. Kind of going beyond the way we think it should be if we soften around that and say, I'll be happy, whatever the outcome, and we open to this vast field of possibilities, this much wider field of happiness. So I brought a lot more ease, spaciousness, happiness to my life practicing this way. I think the employees at the airport felt a whole lot happier too. When I stopped letting go of trying to be the boss, I had a special knowledge and started putting a lot more trust in them, trusting their wisdom, trusting the wisdom of the whole group. A great way to practice is with renunciation. I consciously try and bring this into my practice in life is practicing renunciation around times when I'm sick or when friends and loved ones are sick can really pay attention. Sometimes when we have a bad cold or just not feeling well, immediately the judgment can kick in. I did something wrong. I wasn't careful enough. Or maybe blaming someone else. So the force of the defilements come forward. So we can practice renunciation just to be present with it. The intention not to allow those forces to arise when we're not feeling well kind of not shooting that second dart. And then when we do, being present for that, returning to our deepest intention, deepest intention of practicing with renunciation, and then being able to be more fully present with kindness and compassion for ourselves or for the loved one who isn't feeling well. So we find this ability with this practice to trust the heart to trust awareness. 
not needing to figure everything out, not needing to make things different than they are. I continue to find in my hospice work, I, I had I've been a hospice volunteer in the 90s and I stopped for a while. Then I took it up again in 2006 or so when I decided to bring this Eightfold Path more fully into my life. That service work again became very important. When I returned to the hospice work, so many times I was stopped being a surprise, but initially the surprise on how the words and the actions would just come forth from the heart of awareness. I would suddenly reach out my hand, the person who was dying, and start stroking their head or forehead or touch their hand or express words on appreciating the beauty of their heart. It would just come forth. We can really trust the heart, trust this present awareness in such a deep way. And those experiences led me to have a deeper faith in the practice and being able to just be fully present without needing to do anything with this practice of present awareness. So all of you will have a rich opportunity soon to practice with this quality of renunciation when you get your cell devices back. <laughs> you, can, you can play play with this. You might want to set an intention around renunciation before you get the device back. Maybe he's saying, I'm going to wait four hours before turning it on. Yogi I meet with regularly in practice has a practice of only looking for email messages twice a day. So we can formally adopt some kind of resolves around practicing with the cell phone devices. A great quote from Sharon Salzberg, mindfulness is the ultimate mobile device. You can use it anywhere, anytime, and unobtrusively. Another way that I practice with renunciation is waking up to, to white privilege, to areas where a sense of entitlement may come forth, where a sense of implicit bias may be present. It really takes some effort and courage because sometimes it involves seeing things that really don't want to be seen, both individually in my own heart, but at the societal level too. Remembering uh, today, I remembered when I started at the airport in my job as airport director and I was walking around the airport, all the corners, checking everything out. And I kept running across employees and stairwells who were sleeping. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on. They were sleeping because they were working two full-time jobs, getting paid minimum wage, no benefits, and that's what they had to do to survive. And then because the airport was a, kind of the landlord, everybody, all the companies there, 40,000 employees in total at the airport, all the companies had to report their data on their employees. So it was about 11,000 employees at that time earning close to minimum wage. 90% were people of color. Very high percentage of immigrants. Kind of heartbreaking to see that how that plays out. And I investigated further. I talked to the managers of the companies, and they'd rather have paid their employees more. They liked their employees, but they couldn't because the headquarters would have fired them if they paid the employees more. And the CEOs and the headquarters in other parts of the country or the world might have wanted to pay more too, but if they did, they would have been fired because their companies would have been less profitable. The companies that paid the lowest wages would have gotten the work. Can you so we're, we're all involved in some way. All of the money coming into the airports comes from the tickets we purchase. It filters down to the airlines, to all the service companies. Probably if anybody were asked, would you pay $2 more for your ticket to pay someone 2 or $3 more an hour? 
course, we'd, we'd say yes, but the whole system has been set up for this to continue to exist in this way. And it plays out in a, in a form of racism where the people who are paid the lowest tend to be people of color. Quote from James Baldwin, I imagine that one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. As I started over the last few years to really, and it's an ongoing effort to wake up, it's become a rich conversation, ongoing conversation with my partner. Conversations we hadn't had despite being together for 24 years. He's an immigrant, undocumented. He grew up as an undocumented immigrant. And really interesting to see how even small things can play out. I was a jaywalker for many years. <laughs> if I saw a don't walk sign and saw no traffic on the street, I'd cross anyway. My partner would never do that. Why is that? For an undocumented immigrant, breaking the law in any way can mean the whole family being deported. So I, I recognize that now as kind of a form of entitlement, the way that I felt I could just walk through the intersection even if it said don't walk. So now I make it a practice not to do that anymore. So the second aspect of right intention is metta. It counters a force of aversion, of ill will. It can really set this intention very deeply in our practice. To use it kind of as a check-in before conversations, before meetings, to check in and pause. I brought this into my workplace environment. I'd say I miss 90% of the time <laughs> in checking in on that intention. But the more I checked, the more it started, the groove started to deepen. So I could, could more and more carry forth into all of my life that intention for kindness and goodwill. A yogi I've known for some years, is uh, a coffee barista at Starbucks, told me how she really makes it a practice to keep being kind to every customer. You know, she works at a downtown Starbucks. People come in frazzled, hurried, unfriendly. She keeps reconnecting with that intention. It really supports the practice. When I first started talking about kindness and caring with my employees at the airport, there was kind of a shock, like, what are you talking about that for in the workplace environment? But they started to connect with it. We, we all want to be seen wholly for who we are. We all want to be treated kindly. We all want the same safety, happiness, health, and ease. We started talking about that more with the 50 million passengers a year who travel to the airport. We started having conversations. How can we be more kind? How can we be more caring? So I encourage you, if you're in the working world, bring the kindness into conversations in the workplace supports not only your happiness, it supports others' happiness. It's a radical thing to do. <laughs> radical kindness, I guess. It can be a real edge of practice to stay with this intention for metta, especially in this time in our country. And it feels like the forces of hatred are really burning so strongly. In my own practice, really staying with the intention of equanimity, to accept the present moment as it is, to stay connected to the intention for kindness and compassion, and then letting the actions come forward from this place of peace and kindness, rather than being in a reactive position. When we are in the world in this way, then we become beacons of light, even amidst great hatred. And ultimately, this power of love doesn't stand in, 
in opposition to anything. It's not love against hate. Love loves, but love becomes a cure for the hatred. And as we practice, we can practice this quality of loving to bring forth, cultivate this quality of loving kindness. But ultimately it is like a surrender. We surrender to love, to loving kindness. Because it's ultimately a quality of awareness itself. And the third aspect of right intention is non-harming. Quality of non-harming that we've undertaken with the precepts here. It's guided by compassion. When we're guided by compassion, then we allow this spontaneous response of the heart to recognize and know suffering and then wish for it to end. And then sometimes engaging in appropriate action. It can become a more and more refined practice, practicing with compassion, with non-harming, recognizing the importance of every intention and action. A neighbor just saw this weekend, and uh, he's probably about 70 years old. And he said, oh, I just came back from a checkup and everything looks good, I'm really healthy. And I said, oh, why were you concerned? He said, well, I just had a kidney removed. I donated a kidney to a friend so that his life could be saved. What an extraordinary act of generosity that the, the natural giving, this responsiveness that can come forth when the quality of non-harming is really cultivated, when the precepts are really cultivated. He's also a practitioner and he told me how There'd been a lot of fear as he was preparing to go in for the surgery because he could have lost his life too. And he said that the reflections on the Buddha's instructions on death and dying where it really carried him, allowed him to be at peace and undertaking that action and going into the operating room. So both he and his, and his friend are in very good health now. In the, in the workplace for me, for the folks I work with, the intention for non-harming began to manifest. It's not just following rules like on environmental regulations, but then taking the action to go further. So uh, it didn't come from me, but my staff came up with a plan to become carbon neutral. It's doable. I think, I think they'll get there. And... Uh, it's radical. Probably the whole country could be there in a few years if we were really aiming in that direction. But we all do what we can. Really powerful for me too. I think one of the maybe the proudest thing I'm one of the proudest things I'm from my career at the airport is having acted when I saw those low wages and benefits to take an action. All the way back in 1999, we raised the wages about 40% above the federal standard and required that health benefits be provided. And uh, so now with the employment growth at the airport, 14,000 people who have benefit, benefited from that. So as we practice non-harming, we really open to the natural responsiveness of the heart to want to do good, to recognize the bliss of blamelessness as we practice with the precepts. We have opening to our own basic goodness, this purity of the heart. So again, right intention is renunciation, loving kindness and non-harming. It supports clarity and wisdom, supports the arising of gratitude, generosity, supports the opening of the other beautiful qualities of the heart, compassion, 
supportive joy and equanimity. A quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Right intention becomes a true renunciation of the defilements, born out of a deep understanding. And right view is to become a direct seeing into the real nature of phenomena, previously grasped only conceptually. So the Eightfold Path of Practice for the whole of our lives leads in the direction of the very end of suffering. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for your kind attention and for your practice. And there will be chanting tonight at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.